This is the Meiji at 150 podcast. I'm Tristan Gruno. In this episode, I'm talking with Dr. Mark Metzler, professor of Japanese history in the Department of History and the Henry M. Jackson School of International Studies at the University of Washington. His most recent publication is Central Banks and Gold, How Tokyo, London, and New York Shaped the Modern World, published by Cornell University Press in 2016. Dr. Metzler, thank you for being here. Uh, thank you for inviting me. Much of your research has looked at global history. So from the perspective of the outside world, what is the position of the Meiji Restoration? Well, I think there's a lot of ways that you can approach that. Um, the Japanese post-war prime minister, Ishibashi Tanzan, um, one of Japan's most famous economic journalists, a famous Keynesian writer in the, in the 1930s, described the Meiji Restoration as the time that the waves of the British Industrial Revolution reached Japan. Nowadays, that wouldn't be a very fashionable point of view among historians, I don't think. But in fact, I think there's a lot to it. Um, think of the imagery of Perry's steam-powered or hybrid steam-powered ships coming into Japanese waters and the impression that made in 1853-1854. Think about the wars, the series of wars that the British were fighting in China using steamships as a secret weapon in 1839 um, to 1842, again in the late 1850s at the time that Japan was being forced open to trade with that as a kind of threat in the background. So even if we think of it strictly from the side of military technology, we can say steam and fossil fuel has something to do with it. And looking at the records from the time around the Meiji Restoration, I was always struck by how much international events come into the thinking of people leading up to the Restoration and immediately after the Restoration as well. They're very well aware of what's going on in the Opium Wars. They're talking about what's happening in Egypt, for example. Uh, and so the international events certainly do seem to be impacting the restoration and the direction that the Meiji leaders take immediately following the restoration. Yeah, I think absolutely the restoration can be understood in that way as an event in global history. I think we can also understand it from the standpoint of global trade. That might be um, something we want to talk about a little bit more. I think we can also understand it as an event within the stream of Japanese history, um, if we think about it in big, long, secular terms, if we um, think about Japan's demographic history, for example, I think the Meiji Restoration, maybe not the restoration itself, but the, the transformation of the 1860s, broadly speaking, looks like a major hinge in time. It looks like a shift in the demographic regime from a population that hadn't been growing for more than 100 years, a long period of zero population growth to a period of very rapid population growth. That would be just one example. In my own research, I've been interested in the monetary aspects of it and looking at the change in Japan's monetary system, again, with the, the hinge really in the 1860s, um, the tremendous inflation that happens in the 1860s that deranges social relationships of all kinds that radically destabilizes the position of the samurai class. All these things are going on simultaneously. So whether we look from the outside in or from the inside out, it's truly a 
turning point, I think, on a scale that has very few peers in the long history of Japan, in the many centuries long history of Japan. And talking about these kind of long durée approaches, looking at larger shifts over the entire 19th century, for example, and, and even global trends around, around the time, really brings to mind this question of, are we perhaps fetishizing the year 1868 too much? I don't think so. I, I think recently, I think, if anything, the tendency among historians has been to look for continuities across the presumed ruptures that so often serve as the beginning points and the end points of the courses that we teach. Modern Japanese history begins with the Meiji Restoration, for example, or the, the beginning and end points of books that are written and so on. In this case, I don't think it's an exaggeration to see this as a rupture point. And though it's not an object of my own research, I've read enough autobiographies and enough accounts, biographical accounts, of this period to know that ordinary people, that huge numbers of people experienced it, perhaps not immediately in that year, but in the retrospect of 10 years or 20 years, experienced it as the difference between one historical era and another in the most acute way, in a more acute way than I think many of us can imagine. People who live in North America and have lived under long continuing constitutional regimes without this kind of rupture. I think people that have lived through periods of radical revolutionary change in other countries, um, perhaps the change from the Soviet Union to Russia, the changes that happened in many European countries during World War II, the Chinese Revolution. I think those are comparable instances, but yeah, I, I don't think we put an exaggerated attention on these particular years. I think it's fully justified. Your books to date have all looked at the economic history of Japan. And so can you give us a few examples of how the economics of Japan changes after the Meiji Restoration or, or maybe how finance changes? One of the things that stands out most for me is the changes in prices. And I think maybe it's worthwhile to stop for a moment to think about what prices are that the price of rice, for example, really reflects a complex composite of not tens of thousands, not hundreds of thousands, but in the case of Japan, millions and millions of personal transactions and relationships. It's arguably the most important number, the price of rice for ordinary people, for the national economy. It reflects a huge number of things. It can be very informative, and obviously it shaped people's lives in a dramatic way. If the price of rice doubles or triples or quadruples in the course of a year, obviously that affects everyone. And this is exactly what was happening during these years. During the 1860s, Japan had a historic inflation, especially seen in rice prices, and especially in those two years right before the Meiji Restoration. We see a sudden increase in rice prices, a kind of bubble in rice prices in 1866, then a falling back down of rice prices in 1867. In the whole statistical record of the 19th century, no other event comes close. So in some kind of purely numerical sort of statistical way, even if we didn't know there were a major political event at this time, if we looked at those numbers, we'd say something big was happening at this particular point in history. 
if we put that together with the history of rice riots in Japan and the very careful um, statistical compilations that have been put together by Japanese historians, particularly by Professor Aoki Koji, who put together a very famous study of peasant uprisings during the Edo period and the early Meiji period, really a year-by-year analytic account and then statistical compilations. In those accounts, the year 1866, two years before the Meiji Restoration, a year before the revolution, perhaps the year of the revolution, if we want to think about the civil war in the summer of 1866 between Choshu and the shogunal forces that really decisively tip the balance and decisively break the prestige of the shogunate. So if we think about those years as the years of revolution, once again, happening on a completely different social plane from the politics involving the samurai class, these political battles among the samurai class, we see peasants engaging in revolt in a level completely without precedent in the entire Tokugawa period. There's a long-run tendency toward an increasing number of both peasant uprisings and urban riots, as um, Aoki's account makes clear, but 1866 in terms of the other records really sets an entirely new level for both of those things. It's a complete standout year, completely, um, in fact, surpassing um, moments of extreme famine and crisis that we see in earlier periods of Tokugawa history, for example, the 1830s or the 1780s. So in that sense also, whether we're looking at prices, whether we're looking at the expression of grievances by the commoner class in the in a form that's defined as illegal, in a form that's defined as rebellion, this would stand out also in the history of the 19th century. Those are just two examples, but I mentioned demography already. If we were to look at the structure of, cha- of trade, we would see really just epical transformations going on, both in the scale of trade already happening a few years before the Meiji Restoration and in the composition of trade. And these things are happening within an industrial structure or a economic structure that is basically continuous. If we want to talk about aspects of continuity, Japan's economy across the 1860s wasn't changing because of Western technologies, except maybe in one particular sense, and that's transportation technology. That's access to to foreign markets via foreign shipping. But otherwise, if we would look at how things are made in Japan, how things are distributed within Japan, technological change would not yet be a significant part of the story. Later on, it's going to be that, but that all takes time for technological change, new industries really to become statistically significant. That's maybe about 20 years after the Meiji Restoration. That's going to take really a generation-long process of making those technologies, finding homes for those technologies in Japan. Nonetheless, the, the changes going on in economic structure are absolutely profound and happening in a very concentrated way within just a few years. economic aspects of the Meiji Restoration and, and causes of, of the Meiji Restoration itself, 
mean, there's always the story of samurai impoverishment mm -hmm. and the lower-ranking samurai who are the ones who are leading the, the restoration cause. But that's more talking about personal motivations. Right? If we were to make an economic case, what kinds of economic causes are there for when the restoration happens? That I can't quite answer. I haven't looked into it sufficiently to be able to give a good answer, but, but I can offer a strong hunch or a, a strong idea of a place to look, and that would be to look at debt to look at relationships of debt. And this would bring together the, the story of the samurai class, the, the chronic indebtedness of the samurai class. It would bring that together with the picture of price history, with sudden derangements in pre-existing price structures in the, the price of one commodity versus another commodity, radical increases in prices happening in a in a very brief time period, for example. And that would bring together the economies of ordinary people, people who are producing silk now for international markets, who are borrowing in order to expand their own silk production in response to just booming market demand, and then perhaps are finding that they're overborrowed. And maybe we don't need to use the word perhaps because we know that this happened, and we know that one of the motivations of many of those rioters, the riots were concentrated, especially in the silk producing districts. The motivations did involve grievances about debt in addition to grievances about taxes on silk production and so on. So we know that those kind of everyday motivations, everyday economic motivations were, were present on the part of commoners, at least a kind of underlying story in the motivations of samurai patriots who may have been relatively detached from economic considerations, maybe the, the kind of wandering um, political radicals that played such a big role in these movements were living a life subsidized by others. Um, they, were, they were finding patrons to support them to the extent that they had any support at all. So they may look like they're relatively detached from the economy, but yet they come from a social milieu in which debt was absolutely conditioning everything. So if I were to look at it, that's the one issue that I think I would take as a wedge, uh, as, a, as a method for getting at um, some of the economics of the Meiji Restoration. And debt certainly seems to weigh heavily on the minds of the Meiji leaders earlier in the Meiji period. Absolutely. Yeah. Inoue Kaoru resigns as Vice Minister of Finance in 1873, I believe, and, and when he does so, he announces to the world how much in debt the Meiji government is, and it's some astounding uh, number. But when thinking about all of the state-building projects that the state is undertaking, building the railways, building the telegraph, the lighthouses, I mean, it really drives home how much money they were spending in the project of building this new nation. And and the, the Tokugawa Bakufu, um, the Tokugawa shogunate, has already been engaged in many of these projects, in fact, and has already taken on large debts to foreigners, um, has already taken on a, a degree of foreign debt. Various of the daimyo have taken on debts. They've been buying ships from the foreigners. The, the shogunal government has been buying warships from Western merchants, buying secondhand ships because of the um, political crisis within Japan and because of their, um, their fears of foreign countries engaging in expensive military modernization efforts and so on. 
and they're facing a fiscal crisis. The old government is facing a fiscal crisis. So that if we were to look at the level of state policy, I think we would also see so much of it being conditioned by debt during this period. And as you mentioned, there was always a hesitancy to allow foreign investors. So when they're building the railway, for example, yes, they do take a loan out from the Oriental Bank, but there's always a, a reluctance to allow foreigners to invest in Japanese industries. And that kind of brings us back to how aware the Meiji leaders were of Western practices of imperialism in other places. I mean, there's references to what Cromer is doing in Egypt, for example, bankrupting the Egyptian state as a way to get English influence into Egypt. And they're very well aware of these kind of global current events. Yeah, and, and I think increasingly aware this becomes a, it, it becomes, in fact, a bigger and bigger story as we get further into the Meiji period. And by the time we get into the, into the 1880s, which is really the second phase of an international debt crisis, Japanese leaders are very well aware of that. But it's, in fact, though it doesn't affect Japan directly, it's interesting to think about the fact that the Meiji reforms are really taking shape, the early Meiji period reforms are really taking shape initially in years of an international economic boom and an international economic boom that's being funded by enormous foreign bond issues, especially coming out of London, also coming out of Paris, but especially coming out of London in a way that's never been seen before in world history. So if we, we think about what's going on in the world during these years, think about North America, for example. Think about the Transcontinental Railroad. Transcontinental Railroad, I'm not remembering the exact date, but it's 1871. It's the summer of 1871, right, that that's completed. The Suez Canal has just been completed. Trans-India Railway has just been completed. All of these events are happening right around 1869, 1870, 1871. Um, the rapid extension of steamship services involving rebuilding of ports, um, making port facilities that are suitable for the new style of steamship during this time, and multiple, multiple examples involving steamship service, the railroadization of many areas of the world. All these things are enormously expensive, and all of these things involve enormous international lending coming out of London. Japan's involved in that in a very limited way. As you mentioned, the Oriental Bank loan for building the Japanese railway. And the Japanese government, even at that point, is sensitive to the implications. After 1873, a historic international debt crisis breaks out. There have already been some sovereign defaults before this time. But in the year 1873, 1874, 1875, in those few years, um, global commodity prices are falling and one country after another is declaring bankruptcy on those debts. And you mentioned maybe the most fateful example of all. One of those countries is Egypt, and Egypt is defaulting on its debts, enormous debts taken out during the mid-century cotton boom. Egypt is defaulting on its debts in 1875, 1876. That's going to become the occasion for increasingly intrusive control by the British and French bondholders, culminating in 1882 in the outright British invasion of Egypt. And all of that is justified in the name of the rights conferred to creditors 
and Lord Cromer, as he names himself, the in, in effect the British viceroy in Egypt under the authority of the dual British-French administration, but in effect a kind of viceroy in Egypt. His whole program is to ensure that Egypt repays its debts, and the Meiji leaders are absolutely aware of this and using this as an argument against taking out foreign loans. Um, this really brings it home. But I think that awareness that debt implied subordination, I think that's something that preexisted the Meiji Restoration, something that um, was very much in people's minds already, that if we go back to the Tokugawa period, that implied a radical, inappropriate reversal of social hierarchies when Samurai are in debt to merchants who are supposed to be their social inferiors. All of this is um, very much forming people's common sense about what debt means, I think. And Inoue Kaoru in, in the 1890s, you know, he kind of flips the script on, with Cromerism. And whereas previously they were concerned, the Meiji leaders were concerned about foreign debt in Japanese industries, they used the same tactics against Korea. Absolutely. When yeah. they're first negotiating the Seoul Busan Railway, uh, Inoue Kaoru, who's the ambassador plenipotentate at the time, actually floats the same kind of idea that Cromer does that we can sign a treaty to build a railway with the Korean government, and if they default, well, we get to own it eventually. defaults in the 1870s, I was thinking about what was happening in Japan in the 1870s. And of course, in, in 1873, we have this big schism in the government, which then sets up a number of samurai rebellions, the Kago Rebellion in 1874, Shinpuden Rebellion, and of course, culminating in the 1877 Satsuma Rebellion. Is this another moment of rebellions that we saw, for example, in the 1860s? Are, are these economically motivated? Um. I can't answer that because I haven't really looked into that, but I could virtually guarantee that if one dug, un, dug into it with that question in mind, one would find an economic story that, that that would in fact be part of it. Certainly in the effects of those rebellions, it's enormously consequential economically speaking. The, the financing of the rebellions, the, um, the loan financing schemes involving the national banks generate a kind of inflationary boom that becomes increasingly a speculative boom after the Satsuma Rebellion, particularly in 1877. So the, the Satsuma Rebellion, which is called a war in, in Japanese, the Seinan Senso, the, the Southwest War, it really, in terms of its profile in economic history, it does indeed look like a war with an inflationary boom, um, classic inflationary-style war fa financing, followed by a deflationary bust afterwards, and that deflationary bust is called the Matsukata deflation. So if we take that word seriously, that this was a war, it certainly looks that way economically speaking. Again, I don't know about the, the causes, about the motivations of the, the, the samurai who were there in Kyushu um, resisting the new government, but no doubt, as with everything else, 
human history is integral. I mean, there's economic aspects to everything. And, and in the 80s, we get the freedom and popular rights movement, which turns violent after the 1880s. The Chichibu riot in 1884 is the biggest of all rice riots. Uh, you were talking in your lecture last night about how these boom and bust cycles are very cyclical. Every decade, in fact, you were pointing out every decade there's a similar type of crisis. Is it perhaps possible that the rebellions are also part of this cyclical process where there is the economic crisis that leads to rebellions as far back as 1850s, 60s, 70s, 80s, going into the Taisho period when we have this era of violence in Tokyo, which also is kind of economically motivated in some sense by rice prices? Yeah, there's, uh, I guess there's several different kind of modalities of relationship there, but but definitely we can see that these things are continually interacting. I mean, these you know, mass movements, um, violent opposition movements with these kind of economic movements. You mentioned the um, what was going on in the 1880s. I believe it was 1884 with the Chichibu uprising, which absolutely had to do with debt. Um, the peasants were forming themselves into parties, um, sometimes describing their groups as debtors' parties, very much in the pattern of late Edo period uprisings, targeting local money lenders and, and so on. So it's um, in a condition of falling prices, falling prices for silk, falling prices for rice during the Matsukata deflation years. Debts, which were fixed in money terms, became harder and harder to repay the real weight of the debt. If rice prices fall by 50%, the real weight of the debt has increased by the same proportion. The real weight of the debt is doubled. One needs to deliver twice as much rice in order to be able to repay that money debt at that same level. Mm -hmm. And for people who are already operating on extremely narrow margins, perhaps weren't even making it in good times, it's a complete disaster. Um, it's, it's breaking people's lives, and, and you can see the consequences there. That's one modality, the sort of debt deflation modality, and it's something certainly not unique to Japanese history. This is a, a theme in the history of many times and places as, as far back as there was debt, and debt right. goes as far back as Even the Iki, history goes the, back. The Iki of the medieval period, yeah. right? You can also... it, yeah, we see it very early. We see it in the, the as early, I think, as um, certainly Muromachi period. We, we see how much debt was bound up with the peasant uprisings there. Another modality would be the inflationary modality. Uh, maybe we could label it the rice riot type of modality, which could also be rural events if we're talking about, again, silk producers who are specialized in silk production who need to buy rice on the market in order to eat. They're going to be affected just as urban dwellers would be affected by high rice prices. And we can see um, rice riots in response to excessively high rice prices. We can see that on occasion during the late Edo period. We can certainly see it on the eve of the Meiji Restoration in the year 1866, when there's just an extraordinary rash of both rural and urban riots, when rice prices are spiking due to speculation in the rice market, due to the shogun, shogunal army's purchases of rice in the market, and a number of other factors, weather factors as well. And we can see it again, very classically, of course, in the World War I era, rice riots in the 1918 rice riots. These are the biggest of all, and again has to do with the case of wartime inflation and massive urban riots. And 
That's a global story. That's not just a Japanese story all around the world. Um, there's bread riots and rice riots, uh, particularly in the year 1918 um, when prices were jumping up so high. But um, in, in the years around that time, 1917, 1918, 1919, this is something that you can find in the history of numerous countries. So it, it really is a kind of classic nexus between prices and popular unrest, uh, which by the time we get to 1918 is often taking on a very new, hard ideological edge. There's a, a new language of socialism and after 1917, increasingly Leninism that's informing many of these movements and, and those things are really coming right together. It really emphasizes how important monetary and fiscal policy was mm -hmm. for the Meiji government and methodologically how important economics are to our research in general. We can never seem to escape economic history. Yeah, though I think economic history for a generation has maybe gone out of fashion in, in most North American history departments, but, but there is no escaping it. And it comes back into every other aspect of history, and we don't need to stretch very far to find the, the economic dimensions of those things, I don't think. The Meiji at 150 podcast is hosted by Tristan Gruno at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. This podcast would not be possible without the cooperation of the UBC Center for Japanese Research and the technical assistance of the UBC Faculty of Arts, ISIT. Find out more about the Meiji at 150 project, including the Meiji at 150 lecture series, digital teaching resource, and workshop series by visiting our website, meijiat150.arts.ubc.ca. Thank you for listening.